man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O oh children, listen to me. I will teach you to fear the, I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and he hear and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to cut off from the memory of them, to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate righteousness will be, those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. So this psalm, like many other psalms, is in the form of an acrostic poem. So all that means is that each successive line uh, begins with a successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So I want us to have this whole psalm in mind as we dive in this morning. But we're going to kind of focus our minds on the first eight verses or so and then kind of uh, cherry pick from the rest of the psalm as we dive into kind of the main thrust here. So I really just want us to walk through these first eight or ten verses or so and draw out what David is laying out for us here. And I, I think we're going to see three points here. What I want us to see is, I want us to see that there's a, what we see is a man who has tasted the goodness of God. I think then we see how he has tasted the goodness of God. And finally, we're going to see how we are to taste the goodness of God ourselves. So firstly, in these first three verses, I think what we see is a man who has tasted the goodness of God. Look at verses one through three again. <clears throat> he says this, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be on my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. You know, when you spend time with your family or friends or coworkers, how do you know when one of them has experienced something really good? They won't stop talking about it, right? They keep praising it. So maybe it's a restaurant, maybe it's a food, maybe it's a trip, maybe it's a vacation. Maybe it's a park they've been to recently. I mean, that's human, right? That's, that's what we do. What we treasure in our hearts, we praise with our lips, don't we? So in the same way, how do we identify a person who has experienced the goodness of God? Evidently, they won't stop talking about him. In the, in the words of verse 1, his praise is continually on their lips. And this is exactly what we see here in Psalm 34 with David. So the thing we see right here from the beginning of this psalm is that whatever David had experienced in this life, he was, a, he was certainly a man who had come to see the character of God. 
He had come to see God. And God left him with the impression that God is a God who deserves to be praised. And we know this because he's resolving. Notice this. He's resolving in this circumstance to praise God whatever his circumstances may come to. I will bless the Lord when? At all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. You know, I don't know about you, but I think sometimes our first instinct when we read a verse like this is to be drawn to David's resolve, kind of his personal commitment, right? David's saying, I'll, I'll praise the Lord all the time. And we're tempted to think, oh my goodness. I mean, David was such an amazing follower of God. Look how David praised God all the time. Without ceasing, David praised God. Or we'll be in a Bible study and, we'll, and our first observation will, will be something like, well, goodness, that's not me. And we get discouraged. Our hearts can do that, can't they? We can turn even, even someone's testimony to the faithfulness of God. We can turn, turn it into a vehicle for our own discouragement. That's actually the very opposite of the point here, isn't it? David's resolve to praise God all the time. That's not a testimony to how faithful David is, is it? It's a testimony to how faithful the Lord is. And this verse is not here to shame us into thinking how, how bad we are at worshiping God in comparison to David or someone else. This verse is here to do just the opposite. This verse is here to take our eyes off of ourselves and to set them on the God out there who's worthy to be praised all the time. And I think this can actually be a life-changing truth for us if we let it. The fact that God is so good that he is worthy to be worshipped no matter what my life looks like in any given moment. The worthiness of God to be worshipped does not ebb and flow with our circumstances. That's why he says, I will bless the Lord at all times. So I think verse 1 kind of sets the tone for this entire psalm. And that tone is that we should leave being struck with the worthiness of God to be praised. And in in true poetic form, verse 2 is basically making the same point, but he goes at it from a different angle. Look at verse 2. So he doesn't just come out and say, again, I'm going to worship God all the time. What does he say? My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Now that's a helpful way to think about worship, isn't it? Worship is boasting in the Lord. I think you see what he's saying here. Every person here has a heart right? Has a soul. It's our innermost, our truest self. Our heart is indicative of what we love. And the truth of the matter is whatever our heart loves will control our lives. And David's saying the thing that my heart loves, the thing that my heart boasts in is the Lord. And this just has to be true of God's people, doesn't it? If anything, we must be a people who make our boast in the Lord. So what is boasting? So boasting is all about kind of drawing attention to something, right? It's kind of like putting a highlighter into the story of your life. What are you going to choose to highlight in your life? So I wonder if you've ever run diagnostics on your own heart with this question in mind. What do you, what do you just kind of automatically boast in? What does your heart make much of in your own life? You know, inevitably... If we're honest, the answer is, when we run these diagnostics, the results come back that we don't boast in the Lord all the time. So what do we do? What if we look at our lives and if we're honest, 
Our hearts boast in other things. We boast in a career or a home or politics or parenthood or money or vocation or leisure. What if we look at our lives and say, my soul doesn't boast in the Lord? What do we do? Look back at verses 2 and 3. He says, my soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I just notice how this psalm is unfolding. So, so David is telling us of his own experience, isn't he? He, he himself has found something good in this God. And in God, he's found a Lord who is worthy to be praised all the time. And then what does he do in the rest of verses 2 and 3? The person who has experienced something good in God is inviting everyone else around them to join in the thing that they've experienced to be good. He's just inviting us to join in. So if you look at your heart and you say, I boast in other things. What are you supposed to do? Verse 2, let the humble rejoice and be glad. Humble yourself and do what? Verse 3, magnify the Lord with him. I think step one in setting our boast on something outside of ourselves is to join in with those who have already found the good thing, right? So listen, if you find that your heart is not boasting in the Lord, the answer is not to is not just to kind of get alone with God, kind of isolate yourself and try to find that goodness of God. I think the answer, at least one of the answers that the psalmist is laying out here, is humbling ourselves enough to gather together with those who have found the thing that is good. We gather together, we discipline ourselves to get out of our isolation and gather together with those who are also struggling to find their boasts in the Lord and we join in and we magnify God together. You know, I think one of the main points, one of the main goals of corporate worship is kind of blow the roofs off of the caves that we make for ourselves in our isolation. And we do that. We come together. We blow the roof off of these isolation caves so that we can magnify the Lord once again. We can actually see the truth about God. That, oh my goodness, he is good. I forgot, but he is good. We do that, don't we? We can cave ourselves up in our own worlds. We can isolate ourselves with discouragement or self-pity or pride. But when we gather together, the goal, at least, is to remind one another of the truth about God. We magnify him together. So here in this first point, we have a, we have a man who has experienced the goodness of God, right? His, his soul boasts in the Lord. And, and according to him, the application is that we should join in. We should join in. But this raises the question, so why join in the praise? Or in other words, why is God so good? How do we, how do we know that God is so good. How does David know that God is actually good? I think this is what he moves on to. So this is point two. How David has tasted the goodness of God. How he's tasted the goodness of God. I want to read verses four through seven. He says, I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him. And saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Alright, so one interesting thing about this psalm is the context in which it's written. And the context in a word is suffering, affliction. 
So Psalm 34 is one of eight psalms written by David during the time when he was being persecuted by Saul. So if you were to go back and read through the book of 1 Samuel, you would see that there was an extended time when King Saul was pursuing soon-to-be King David. So you can see this back up in the superscription at the beginning of our chapter. See that? What is it, what is it, what it says right there before verse 1? Of David, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, so that he drove him out and he went away. So this particular instance is referring to a time recorded in 1 Samuel chapter 21. So David's being constantly attacked by Saul. There's no good reason for it other than Saul's jealousy. So David flees from Saul and in this particular circumstance he flees out of his own land and finds himself in the land of his enemies. Kind of this wilderness of the Philistines. And not only that, but he finds himself brought before the Philistine king. This is not a good situation. David should die in this situation based on the circumstances. So in 1 Samuel, that king's name is Achish. But here in uh, Psalm 34, he's referred to as Abimelech. So Abimelech would have simply been kind of a universal way to, to uh, refer to the Philistine king. So it literally trans- translated just means my father the king. So kind of similar to um, Pharaoh in Egypt or Caesar in Rome. We have Abimelech in, uh, of the Philistines. And as the superscription reminds us, it's at this scene where David acts like he's lost his mind. It says that he changed his behavior before Abimelech. Literally, he acts insane. So you notice it says he changed his behavior. And I think what that's saying is that if you go back and read that, when he's brought before this king, David starts acting like a crazy person. So he starts acting insane. He's hitting the doors, spit running down his beard. And the king looks at this guy and he, he says he's got a crazy person on his hand. So he tells him to leave. So he lets David go. David flees back to his land, into safety, to his people. Now, it's a really strange story. But at heart, it's a, it's a story of deliverance. It's a story of salvation. The Lord saved David. So there's no reason that David shouldn't have been killed in the land of the Philistines. But for whatever reason, he wasn't. So this psalm, this superscription tells us, corresponds to this time. And it was a time when David was living in the midst of suffering. Yet in that suffering, he saw the miraculous hand of God to save him. And this is what he's writing about in verses 4 through 7. What did he do in the midst of his affliction? Verse 4. I sought the Lord, and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Verse 6, this poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, delivers them. All right, so put this all together. Why is is David so obsessed with praising God in this psalm? What makes God so good to him? And why should we bother joining in? Well, it seems to be because David cried out to the Lord in the midst of affliction and God actually answered him. He heard him cry for help and he gave him help. God proved his nearness. So what, what makes God so good? So is it, is it that God is strong and mighty? Is it that he's sovereign and majestic? Is that he's created everything, that he sustains everything right now? Yes, so all these things, they make God, they prove God to be undeniably great, don't they? But notice, that's 
not the great things that David is meditating on in the psalm, are they? No, the thing that blows David's mind in this psalm is the fact that such a high, exalted, mighty, sovereign, majestic God would listen to this poor sinner's cry for help and answer him. Verse 6, this poor man cried and the Lord heard him. Can't you just kind of feel David's awe? Of that, this poor man cried. You kind of feel the juxtaposition, don't you? This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him. You know, hopefully, you've stood in awe of the greatness of God, the majesty of God. But just as much, hopefully, you've stood in awe of the nearness of God. How close God is to those who call on him. You know, for Christians, the Bible says that the Lord, this Lord, is also our Father. You know, it's one thing to know you have a Father. It's another thing to feel that Father's embrace, to know him as a Father. So I don't know everybody's background here. I don't know what kind of relationship you've had with your earthly father. Maybe it was, maybe it was just kind of a biological fact. There was a man who was your dad. That's true, but that was about it. So if that's the case, you don't in any way equate the word father with nearness or goodness. But for the Christian, that has to be the case. In Christ, because of what Christ has done through our brother Christ, we have a father, God. And his fatherhood means he is to us what he is to David right here in the psalm. That is, he's good and he's near. I think this is why in David's mind, God's praise deserves to be on David's lips all the time. So just, just kind of think back through the psalm. Think of the words that describe God's actions in this psalm. What has God done? Verse 4, he's answered David. Verse 4 again, he's delivered him. Verse 6, he heard David. But hearing, when God hears in the Bible, that's never just kind of like, oh, I hear something. Right? When, when God hears in the Bible, that means he is acting. He hears a cry. He's coming. And that's what he's done with David. What did he do? He saved him, verse 6 says. Verse 7 says that, says that the messengers of the Lord, the messenger of the Lord encamps around those who fear him. So I hope we are beginning to see what David was beginning to know by experience. And that is the Lord God Almighty is not only great, he's good. He's tender. So David found himself in this helpless situation, right? So David was alone, he was rejected, he was doomed to die. David had no hope that he would be saved. Everything was against him. He was in the land of his enemies. Death was imminent for David. But he called out to the Lord for help and the Lord heard him and answered him and delivered him. The Lord saved David. And Christian, I just wonder, are you beginning to see that David is you? At least in this sense. So think of your own life. Think of your own wandering away from God into your own Wilderness into the land of your own enemies. Those things that would kill you. Think of, the, think of the sin that you committed there. Think of your wretchedness because of that. 
Think of your hopelessness. Think, think back to the, the fear that controlled your life. But then, think of the way that God heard your cries for deliverance. God heard your cries for mercy. And he came to you and he rescued you from sin and death. And he brought you into sweet fellowship with himself and the people of God through the atoning blood of Christ. And you begin to taste. God's not just great, but he's good. You know, maybe you're here this morning and you're not sure if you're a Christian. Or maybe you know that you're not a Christian. If that's you, maybe you kind of find your own story there somewhere. Maybe for the first time you're seeing what a desert wilderness you've been living in. Maybe for the first time you're seeing your own sin and its seriousness. If so, know that this good God has drawn near to you in the incarnation of Jesus. Jesus, the very Son of God, he left heaven, took on the flesh of a man, and he lived the perfect life that you and I should have lived, but we haven't. He, he died the sinner's death that you and I should die. And in doing so, what Jesus did was he absorbed any punishment that is deserved by those who trust in him. And he saved us, in David's words, out of all our troubles. And Christians are simply people who were once far off, who were once in the wilderness, but who have been brought near through faith in the blood of Jesus, what he's done on the cross. Listen, if you're, if you're here and you don't know Christ, that's, that's what our faith is. We come, we see our own sin, and we trust that Jesus has paid the price for our sin. And you, too, you can repent and trust in Jesus' work on the cross, too. This is the good news of the gospel. And particularly for us, I think that, you know, maybe it's for us, I, I think it's true at Sterling Park, maybe it's true here, too. I think... I think particularly as a church, we've got to work not to forget that good news comes from a good, tender God. You know, some Psalms in the Bible, they, they want us to really grasp the greatness of God, the majesty, the sovereignty of God. But some Psalms, like Psalm 34, they aren't as concerned with us seeing God as great as they are with us helping us see that God is good. And this brings us to the, the third thing that I want us to see here. And that is that we've got to enter into the reality of this psalm ourselves. We, so we've seen David tasting the goodness of God. We've seen the goodness of God on display in his life. But we've got to be sure that there's a third thing, that we're tasting God's goodness for ourselves. I just love verse 8. David has kind of been exhorting us to join in, and then verse 8, he just kind of explodes, right? Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. So David has moved kind of from praise to description, and now he's pleading for us in this verse. And notice the nature of what he's pleading for. So what does David want for us in verse 8? Does he want us to know that God is good? Well, yeah, but not exactly. Does he, want us to, does he want us to understand that God is good? Well, yes, but still not exactly. That's not what he says, is it? What does David want for us? He wants us to taste God's goodness. You know, if he merely wanted us to kind of know, understand, 
He would have written us a dissertation, wouldn't he? But that's not at all what he's done. In this psalm, an intentional poetic verse, David isn't laying out information, is he? No, he's laying out a feast of experiential truth about God. And he's inviting us not just to know something that's true, but to feel it, to experience, to taste it for ourselves. I think this goes for all of Psalms. So as you're going through this, this series in Psalms, I think this is what, how we're meant to digest Psalms. They're not dissertations that we dissect, right? They're, they're poems that we feel, that we take in. It's a feast that we consume, we chew up. They nourish our souls. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. I wonder if you remember the, uh, the children's show Reading Rainbow. You guys remember that? I don't know if they still have that. <clears throat> so Reading Rainbow was all about trying to get, help kids enjoy reading for themselves, wasn't it? So every episode, you'd have LeVar Burton introducing a segment to talk about how awesome a certain story was. But what was his goal? His goal wasn't to simply tell us all the facts about the story, was it? He simply wanted us, he wanted to give us just enough so that the kids would be excited to open the book and experience it for themselves. So he would end every intro to these books with, with what phrase? He would, he would give all this info about the book and then he'd say, but don't take my word for it. You know, in this psalm, it might be a stretch, but in this psalm, I wonder if David's a bit like our own LeVar Burton. In the sense that he's laying out what he's already tasted for himself. But essentially what he's saying, what David is saying is, don't take my word for it. Don't take my word for it. In church, I just wonder how many of us have spent years being content to take other Christians' word for the fact that God is good. You know, we've heard that God is good. We've heard other people say that, and we believe them, right? It's not that we don't believe that. But if we're honest, it's been a long time since we can say that we've tasted for ourselves the goodness of God. It's been a long time since we've experienced God's goodness in our souls. And as a result, it's been a, it's been a long time since we've been able to honestly say, my soul boasts in the Lord. So what do we do? I want to wrap up this morning just kind of thinking about that. What do we do when we're, not, when we're honestly not tasting the goodness of God? So if that's you, I think it's all of us to one extent or another. I just want to kind of ask a few questions in the last few minutes here to consider how we kind of experience this psalm for ourselves. The first one is actually, I just kind of thought of it this morning as I was thinking about preaching. And the first thing I would ask is, do you recognize God's goodness in the gifts that you have? Do you recognize God's goodness in the gifts that you enjoy every single day? You know, I wonder, I wonder if we have a discipline of examining your life for evidence, evidences of God's goodness to you, specific goodness to you. What are the gifts that he's given you? Very practically, physical gifts. What has he given to you? You know, I think we tend to presume that if we have good and nice things in this life, it's because we worked hard for those things. You know, we may work hard, but that's not contrary to the fact that every good gift comes from a gracious Father. 
Or maybe it's that sometimes we feel a bit weird or maybe we think, maybe we kind of feel greedy about thanking God for nice things that we have that other people don't. Maybe a nice, living in a nice town or living in a nice home. But it seems to be that the biblical pattern is that one way we enjoy the goodness of God is enjoying gifts as gifts from the giver. So I just wonder, do you recognize God's good gifts in your own life? Do you examine your life for the ways that God has blessed you very practically? Does that move you to praise? Or is, is kind of the physical blessings of your life, is that a separate category? Because it feels weird to, to, to kind of ins, insert that into your Christian life. You know, that's, that's kind of step one to idolatry, isn't it? Ironically, we kind of separate those things and they become a thing to themselves instead of avenues through which we give praise to God. So do you recognize God's good gifts in your own life? Secondly, this one's a bit different. I wonder if you view Jesus as your bread of life. Do you view Jesus as the bread of your life? In other words, what do you live off of every day? What sustains you? Just listen to John 6, 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So the fact of the matter is that if you're a Christian, God has made you alive. And he intends for you to keep on living spiritually. And the thing that he's given you to keep you alive is Jesus. Jesus is the bread. He's the sustenance of your life. So think about that. The thing that keeps you alive spiritually is not an object. It's not an activity. It's a person. The Lord Jesus is the food that you must consume to sustain your life. We taste the goodness of God by feasting on the goodness of Jesus. So what does that mean very practically? What it means is that your Bible, so hear me carefully, your Bible merely as a textbook does not keep you alive. Your Bible keeps you alive to the extent that you go to that and to feast on the bread of Jesus, that it serves you. Your prayer life does not keep you alive. Your prayers keep you alive so far as they are communion with Jesus. Your church attendance doesn't keep you alive. You could come to church every week without ever intending to draw any nourishment from Jesus. Gathering at church keeps you alive when you come and feast on Jesus through the word. So read the Bible, absolutely, and pray, absolutely. Gather with God's people on Sunday, absolutely. But do all things with the aim of getting more of Jesus. Stuffing yourself with the bread of life. So what that means, if your faith feels frail, you feed it with the beauty of Jesus. Sufficiency of Jesus. If your love for other people feels shallow, feed it with the love that you yourself have seen in Jesus. Meditate on those things. And conversely, I would just say, we should probably take an inventory of what we're feeding on if it's not Jesus. What kind of junk are we feeding on? When we're feeding ourselves with sinful things, So I think of pride, I think of pornography. Should we be surprised if we 
are having trouble tasting the goodness of God in their circumstances. Jesus is the bread of your life. Whatever you're feeding yourself, contrary to that, we get rid of. And however we jump into this bread of life, we do it. Finally, I would ask, <clears throat> what is your, uh, what's your typical response to suffering? So if you're having trouble experiencing, tasting the goodness of God, I wonder what your typical response is to hardship, to suffering. Another way to ask it is, do your trials tend to drive you toward or away from fellowship with God? So as you read David's life in the Bible, a couple things are clear about his life. One, his life was characterized by trials and afflictions. And secondly, those trials drove him to God. And I think all of us could say that's true. One of those two things is certainly true, right? That we're experiencing trials or affliction of some sort. So the only question is the answer to number two. Which direction are those trials pushing us? Are they pushing us toward the face of God or away from him into self-sufficiency? Can we say in the midst of those trials, our lives are characterized by taking refuge in the Lord? So listen, David, David didn't automatically taste God's goodness because of his trials. No, he tasted God's goodness because his trials drove him into, into God, right? That's one of the main themes of the Psalms that you guys hit on last week, right? Last week, Psalm 1 and 2. Blessed is the man who does what? takes refuge in God. And you're just going to see this over and over again in the Psalms. Psalm 8. Oh, ble- oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. One of the main reasons we should love the Psalms is because they give us such a clear category for trials. And the clear direction they give is that our trials, whenever we experience trials, they are to push us into fellowship with God. You know, church, if we let them, our trials will serve us so well. When we cry out to God for help in the midst of our trials, when we draw near to him by faith, when we proclaim that we cannot do it on our own, but that he has to do it, our trials will serve to highlight the bitterness of this world and the sweetness of knowing God. And you know, it may just be It may just be that it's in those times of suffering that our lives, our Christian lives, are transformed from being simply a list of doctrines that we've memorized to being feasts on grace and mercy that God is giving us in Jesus. You know, it may just just be that suffering is the only way God can wean us off of this world. So conversely, if our trials drive us away from God, if they drive us to self-sufficiency, we've wasted those trials. Because the Lord does not, this is one thing the Bible is clear on, the Lord does not draw near to the self-sustaining, to the person who has it under control. Proud people do not taste the goodness of God. They must be humbled. Who can taste God's goodness? Listen to, the, listen to the description of those people in the rest of this psalm. Who can taste God's goodness? Verse 2, the humble. Verse 6 and 19, 
the poor, the afflicted. Verse 9, those who fear God. Verse 18, the broken hearted. Verse 18 again, the crushed in spirit. These are the people who can taste that God is good because the world has proven to be bitter. They have to have something outside of this world and God draws near to the humble and contrite in spirit. You know, we read earlier from Mark chapter 10 about a rich young man. <clears throat> and this rich young man left, left this presence of Jesus full of sorrow. Why is that? Why did this guy have this conversation with Jesus and he left sad? Because he had a lot of stuff and it tasted really good. And Jesus said, give all that stuff away and come taste the thing that's truly good. And he couldn't do it. And I just think to myself, what a blessing affliction would have been to that rich young man. What a blessing it would have been for Jesus to take it away from him himself. So that he was left with no choice but to feast on Jesus. So when we look at Psalm 34, we see David's life. And it was marked by great suffering. But it was also marked by deep fellowship with God. And I just, I just want that so badly to be true of us. The Lord is inclined to reveal himself to the humble, to the afflicted, to those who come to him for nourishment. Those are people whose palates are ready for the bread of life. So listen, if the Lord's doing that in your life right now, if he's making things hard, if he's making this world taste bitter, I wonder in what way he's leading you to feast on the thing that will actually satisfy you. I wonder if he's leading you to actually be able to say for yourself, the Lord is good. My soul boasts in the Lord. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we give you all the praise this morning. We know that you are good and we just pray that you would help us to taste that, experience that for ourselves. Father, help us not to waste our suffering, our trials. Help them, as they did with David, to push us into fellowship with you. Lord, we pray that you would strengthen our faith in your goodness and your faithfulness. We would be people who, whose lives confess humbly that you are good and blessed is the person who takes refuge in you. Pray that you prove that in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.